glad you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books, at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie sounds like your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 2022's The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast with someone or some ones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. So before we hop into the movie, I just, I have to say, I'm going to attempt not to make a, not to make today a pure fangirl fest for Pedro Pascal. I have feelings. I have lots of feelings about him, but I will do my best to keep in check. I just, I love him so much. I did not originally see this one in theaters. In fact, I can't really remember the last modern day movie I saw in theaters. I met the Art Craft Theater in Franklin a few times a month watching older movies from the 80s, from the 90s, black and white flicks, but newer ones? I was trying to think, and it was maybe Uncharted with Tom Holland or The Lost City with Sandra Bullock, so that's been a couple years. Maybe. I cannot remember. I think that's going to change in March, though, because we get Shazam, Fury of the Gods, got me some Zachary Levi time, John Wick 4, Keanu Reeves. I love the John Wick franchise, Dungeons and Dragons with Chris Pine. So I'm super pumped about a few that are coming out in March. So that might change. Maybe I'll actually make it to the theater to see something new. But anyways, I checked this one out from the library and was ready to roll my eyes at the ridiculousness of Nicolas Cage. And instead, I went through quite the journey. The first phase was the eye rolling. Here we go. Nick Cage being Nick Cage. And then I shifted into, I think I'm enjoying this. Am I enjoying this? <laughs> Which quickly became, this is the best movie I've seen this year with a slight glimpse of maybe ever. I mean, I, I went that far at one point and then I pulled myself back a little bit. Uh, but then the emotion came back during the final crescendo and I landed on, that was a lot of fun and definitely worth my time. And I liked Pedro Pascal, but now I love Pedro Pascal and I need to watch this again. I mean, it was a roller coaster. This movie is meta, hilarious at times, surprisingly thoughtful, and gives Cage just a really kind of awesome character arc that I really enjoyed. And I wouldn't call myself the biggest Nicolas Cage fan in the world. There are a few movies I really like. Raising Arizona, fantastic. Moonstruck, just saw it at the art craft, fantastic. Uh, I really like National Treasure. I, I love the fun of just people on a scavenger hunt with some high stakes. I just, I love it. And I love him in it. I think he does really well with that. And I also really weirdly like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, that Disney flick that came out at live action a couple years ago. I mean, it's been several years now, I guess, but I really like that one as too. But I wouldn't, like, I don't go deep into his catalog. I mean, I've seen Con Air and there are funny moments, but it's not something I go to a lot. Face Off is the same thing. I remember seeing it, but it's not something I go to a lot. But uh, when I think of Nicolas Cage, you just get this campy feeling and that definitely follows into the, this movie, but kind of in the best way possible. What's the worry here, Nick? You've lost some of your talent as an actor? No. <laughs> what did he say? 
He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Ah, man, I'm driving through the hills. I'm sorry. One more time. We got another offer. It's a million bucks. It's to attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. The guy that owns this house, what's his name? Javi. Javi. Mr. Cage. Excuse me. Is Javi going to want me to, uh, you know? I'm not sure I understand. Look, it's Javi. I am Javi. Nick Cage. God, this place is stunning. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. Imagine me and you. I do. Is it too much? Is this supposed to be me? It's grotesque. I'll give you 20,000 for it. I think that's the actor, Nick Cage. Nick Cage? I love you. Have you seen Croods 2? I'm 44 years old. Why would I see Croods 2? I've seen Face Off and Con Air. What do you guys want? We're with Central Intelligence. Do you know who you're spending time with? One of the most ruthless men on the face of this planet. I need you to help the U.S. government. Let's kill this love. Find a way into that room, Nick. See myself doing more of this stuff. I think I might have a real gift for it. Good, because we got another mission for you. No, 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 no. Your friend is working for the U.S. government. Don't lie to me. Are those my golden guns? They're my golden guns. I don't want to kill you. You're the last person I want to kill. I love you. I love you. I'm Nick Friggin'. Let's get into the movie itself. The director, The Unbearable Weight of Mass and Talent, was written and directed by Tom Gormican. Maybe that's how you say his name. Looks like he's newish to Hollywood. He's only got this movie, 2014's The Awkward Moment, and the TV series Ghosted is in his filmography. Gotta say, I just I can't wait to see what else he comes out with, especially things that he writes, because there was a lot of the humor that I really enjoyed in the movie. The movie, of course, stars Nicolas Cage as Nick Cage, Pedro Pascal as Javi Gutierrez, Tiffany Haddish as Vivian, Sharon Horgan as Olivia, Paco Leone as Lucas Gutierrez, Neil Patrick Harris as Richard Fink, and Lily Moshin as Addie Cage. And I discovered a couple days ago, as I was prepping for the podcast, that Lily Mo is the daughter of Kate Beckinsale and Michael Sheen. That just kind of, that blew my mind. <laughs> It just blows my mind that they were a couple because they just don't seem like a couple. I mean, I don't know them personally, so maybe they, they get along really, really well. They were no longer together, but you look at her and you're like, yeah, okay, I can see each of your parents in you. So it was just a fun little thing to find out. There was an estimated budget for the movie of $30 million. It made a little over $7 million during its opening weekend, and it would gross $20 million in the U.S. and $29 million worldwide. That kind of makes me sad. I should have done better than that, but what can I say? I didn't go to the theater either. So that's just kind of the world we're at. You just kind of wait for things to come home and stream. But I know that it's important to actually go to the movie theaters if there's movies that you really want to support so that, you know, 
studios continue to make things, especially with actors that need the support so that you get to keep seeing movies with them in it. What else came out last year? <laughs> this, this section's a little awkward because it did come out last year. So it came out on April 22nd, 2022. It released with the animated feature, The Bad Guys, which I have not seen, and The Northmen with Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman, that kind of Viking movie. I haven't seen that one either. I'm going to have to look both of those up. Also the, out that month, Marvel's Morbius, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, and Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. So it, it really is one of the few kind of original intellectual properties that came out that month because the bad guys is based on a book. I don't know about the Northmen, but again, it's something else to really support is original IP so that they continue to make movies that are not based on comic books. Not that that's bad. I really enjoy the Marvel movies, but that seems to be all there is. So I like new stuff as well. The reviews are fairly good for the movie. It holds an 87% on both the tomato meter, which a reminder, that's the critics' reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, and the audience score, which rarely happens. They matched. Mariah E. Gates, I think that's maybe how you say her name, writes for RogerDebert.com. She gave it three and a half stars. She said, even amidst all this meta commentary on contemporary filmmaking, the mechanics of Hollywood and the emotional heft of fandom, Cage the Man always knows what expected is expected of Cage the myth. In the unbearable weight of massive talent, he finds the perfect synthesis of the two and in turn delivers one of the most complex yet crowd-pleasing performances of his career. Not all critics loved it. I did read some that are just cranky. It's hard for me to read critics' reviews, though, because I think sometimes people give it a bad review, give movies bad reviews just because they think they need to, that they're so highbrow that they can't enjoy something, which just annoys me. And that's why I kind of like listening to podcasts and reading reviews of people who just genuinely seem to like movies and are entertained by <laughs> movies. They might not know all of the ins and outs of what goes into making a movie, and they might not have studied movie in college, you know, film in college, but they just have an enthusiasm for the medium itself. So I tend to stick with their reviews and I don't think too hard about the ones <laughs> that don't like it. There are some movies that are just bad and I acknowledge that. And I feel like I've talked about some of those movies. They can be horrible, but you still kind of love them. Um, but I don't think this falls into that category. I think this was a really good movie, which leads us to our summary, a breakdown of the movie by act, a summary in three parts, if you will. We've got act one, the setup, act two, the rising action, and act three the resolution. We're looking at the movie through the lens of storytelling. So act one, the setup. Hollywood actor Nicholas Nick Cage, he's kind of on the struggle bus. So he's playing himself or a version of himself. We'll get into that a little bit later. But so he's just at a, on the struggle bus with his career, with his family, with his mental health. <laughs> he's been passed over for several big roles. And after auditioning at a lunch with a director, he's desperate to get this job. Um, he, the director was like, no, you don't have to audition. And then he just out in the middle of, you know, the open aired restaurant, he decides to do, <laughs> do this audition with a British, not a British, a Boston accent. He's also pestered and tormented by Nikki, who appears to him as his younger and kind of more successful self. So he'll be driving in a car and then all of a sudden a younger version of himself ends up in the passenger seat to kind of 
talk about how, not a failure, but just how he's not living up to his full potential. He's been in therapy with his daughter, Addie, and she's ready to toss in the towel, realizing that her father will always just kind of be in love with himself. He just really is emotionally tied to his career and not to his family. And then Cage really starts to spiral when he loses out on the film role that he wanted so bad and then totally embarrasses himself and worse his daughter at her 16th birthday party when he sings a song he makes up on the spot because he needs the limelight. He needs everybody to be looking at him. So his ex-wife, Olivia, I assume is driving him home. They're in a car together and kind of has a heart to heart and tells him that their daughter needs a break and he needs to figure out what his priorities are. So with no other options, he doesn't have a job. He owes the hotel that he's staying at a lot of money. Nick Cage accepts a vague offer of a million dollars from this opportunity that his agent, Richard Fink, sets up. And it involves going to this Spanish town, I think, to meet billionaire playboy Javi Gutierrez and to be the guest of honor at this man's birthday party. They've never met before, but he's willing to pay Nicolas Cage a million dollars to come to his birthday party, which I know is a real thing (laughs) that people will have, you know, Katy Perry come and sing at my birthday party. And they give her this exorbitant amount of money. And I, that just seems ridiculous to me, but what do I know? I don't have a million dollars. Cage is So he goes, he's annoyed to be there. He likes the money, but he doesn't really want to interact with this hobby dude who is basically a fangirl of Cage, loves Cage in his movies. But as Nick Cage is then moping in the pool, he tells Javi that he's giving up acting forever. He's being very dramatic. He's like, it doesn't matter. This is my last thing. I'm giving up acting forever. And this can't happen because... Javi also invited Nick Cage to his home in the hope that the actor would read an original screenplay that he wrote and would maybe also star in that movie. So he (laughs) really wants Nick Cage to be in this movie. So Javi then decides he needs to take Nick on an adventure. He needs to remind him of who he is and he needs to get him all, you know, pepped up. So he tries to get him out of his funk. They he drives him out into the middle of nowhere, which is a little scary. And then he pretends as if they are being chased and they go running through this wooded area to the side of a cliff. And he's like, we have to jump. We have to jump Nick Cage. And he gets him all pumped up and the two end up jumping off the cliff into the ocean. And so then they start to bond and they bond over their favorite movies, including Paddington two, which is kind of one of the funniest jokes in the movie. And they are on their way to being friends. The next day, Nick is confronted by these two CIA agents, Vivian and Martin. They are there because they suspect that Javi, who they claim made his fortune through arm stealing and not olive oil, has actually kidnapped this woman named Maria. She's the daughter of an anti-crime politician, and she was kidnapped with the hope that this politician will drop out of the upcoming election. So they think Javi is actually an arms dealer who has kidnapped this girl. And so they are hoping that Nick Cage (laughs) will help them find Maria. Nick insists that his acting instincts would have detected if Javi was a criminal. He's like, no, this dude's not a criminal, but he eventually decides to help the CIA with this mission, which ends act one. It's a bit of a slow start, but as soon as Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal are together, it really starts (laughs) to get fun. And I know I told you I wouldn't fangirl, 
about Pedro. But the beauty of the movie is, well, it's the meta nature, number one, of Nick confronting his younger self. The fact that he's got this younger self that's always arguing with him. And it's kind of, like they said, a commentary, that reviewer said, kind of a commentary on modern filmmaking and an actor himself. But two, the genuine awe-inspired expressions that Pascal has whenever he looks at his scene mate. There's this childlike enthusiasm that just shines through, especially when he smiles. Like he just kind of looks like he's love-struck all the time. Oh, God, I love the man. I love him. The writers and Cage, though, do a really good job of setting up the main character arc. At the beginning of the movie, you can see why Cage's daughter doesn't really have a relationship with him. He's so hyper-focused on his career that he's insanely annoying. But as the movie progresses, he subtly starts to change a little bit, and it's really fun to watch him do that. So that's act one. Act two, the rising action. So the CIA agents, they think that Javi has Maria stashed somewhere on this giant compound that Javi lives in. And so they give Cage a mission to try to find where she might be locked away. So that night is Javi's birthday celebration. And during the party, Nick announces that he's actually going to stick around a little while longer to collaborate with Javi on a new movie. They're going to write a script together, which is really just his excuse to stay on the compound long enough to try and help find Maria. He tried earlier in that evening before the announcement, but his spy attempts failed horribly. He ended up drugging himself and then had to drag himself to where the antidote was stashed. And it's a pretty good scene. Just a lot of physical comedy in that moment. But Javi is like pumped about this collaboration and decides the next day that the two need to kickstart the creative process. And he thinks the best idea for this is to, if they both take some LSD, which leads to my favorite scene in the movie with Nick and Javi driving into this town and then they get inc increasingly paranoid. They think these two guys are watching them and following them. And it's just two guys sitting in the beautiful weather talking and they end up trying to climb over this wall that didn't need to be climbed. And it's just it's pretty hilarious because they're just not in their right minds. So after the escapade, they decide that their movie should be about their relationship because now they have really bonded over hallucinogenics. <laughs> so the CIA then thinks that they may have discovered where exactly on the compound Maria is being held. So they get a hold of Nick again and he tries to break into this room, but Javi catches him in the act and Javi is embarrassed. Um, he still has no idea what's going on, but he's embarrassed. So he decides to just go ahead and take Nick into this room and he reveals that he has built a shrine room dedicated to all of Nick's movies. He's got a wax figure of his character Caster Troy from the film Face Off, complete with these two golden pistols, identical golden pistols that are in the movie. And so it's just, he's got one of those pillows with the sequence that when you brush it one way, it looks like nothing. You brush it the other way and it's Nick Cage's face and you can actually buy those, which I love. Um, so it's just he now Nick's like, oh, my goodness, this man really loves me. And he's actually really touched and <laughs> he's just amazed that he has all of this stuff. So this one of the CIA agents suggests that Nick includes um, a kidnapping in their script to see what Javi's reaction is. Will he be on to them at this point? So then Nick explains this new movie idea to Javi about a, a kidnapping and Javi doesn't really react at all and just believes that Nick is kind of distracted. He can't focus on this script writing because he's distracted by his family issues. His 
daughter and his ex-wife and how um, they seem distant. So then the CIA agent tells Nick, you know what, you need to get out of there or possibly kill Javi because they think that Javi has discovered what is going on. <laughs> but Javi really reveals that he's actually brought Nick's family to the villa. So all of a sudden here are Addie and uh, his ex-wife, Olivia, and Nick is like, oh my goodness. Like now he's starting to get a little worried. Like, did he bring my family to this house? Because now he's going to hold them hostage. So Nick tries to make amends with his daughter and ex-wife, but they don't really want to have anything to do with him. And they accuse him of prioritizing his film career over his family. Meanwhile, Javi privately goes to meet with his cousin, Lucas, who we find out is actually the true arms dealer and the one who kidnapped Maria. And Lucas warns Javi that Nick is working with the CIA and pressures him to kill Nick or else Lucas will kill Javi. So now he's, he's upset. Javi's upset because he's going to have to kill his idol, right? So there's this whole scene where he drives him back out to the area where the cliff was and they both have this, there's this tension because you think Nick Cage is going to kill Javi because the CIA told him to and because he brought his family there. And you think Javi's going to kill Nick because he doesn't want Lucas to get involved. And But they realize that they can't kill each other because they really do have a lot of affection for one another. And then they both start to get shot on. So now um, Lucas has decided to just turn the tables and get rid of both of them. So they survive that ordeal and they rush back to the compound only to discover that Addie has now been kidnapped. So his daughter has been taken away. And so Nick takes Javi, Olivia, and Javi's assistant, Gabriella, who he's secretly in love with, to the CIA safe house. He's going to take them to this Vivian and Martin for some help, um, only to discover that that safe house has been compromised. Martin has been killed and Vivian sacrifices herself to kill Lucas's men before they can ambush the group that's coming into the house. So that ends act two. We have Javi and Nick now having to work together to save each other's lives. We have Addie kidnapped. We have Olivia worried about her daughter, but willing to help Nick get her back. Um, so there's just a lot happening, but you realize that Javi's not the bad guy, which how could you ever believe? Well, Pedro Pascal has played many a bad guy though. So I can't, <laughs> I can't say that. He plays, it just makes me sad when he's the bad guy though. But that leads us to act three, the resolution. Um, it's not even the last third of the movie. It's probably the last, I don't know, 20 minutes of the movie. So with Javi's help, Nick and Olivia pose as this reclusive criminal couple to get close to Lucas and Nick Cage is all about this because he gets to wear <laughs> a disguise. Uh, but Lucas figures out their plan and they do manage to escape and they have Addie and Maria with them. And then Nick, Addie, Olivia and Maria, they race to the American embassy while Javi and Gabriella decide to stay behind to delay Lucas because now everybody's in pursuit. Um, they're trying to get to the safety of the American embassy. Javi and Gabriella realize they have to do something to slow them down. They have to save Nick Cage. So at the, they get to the embassy. Lucas has broken through Javi and Gabriella's, I don't know, blockade. <laughs> it's just the two of them with guns. Um, and then there's a showdown. Lucas has Nick at gunpoint and Addie ends up tossing him this knife, tosses Nick a knife, which he uses to kill Lucas. And in that moment, it transitions into the movie that Nick and Javi completed 
presumably based on their adventure. So Nick is applauded for this new film and congratulates Javi, who did not die in the standoff with Lucas, before going home with his family. He he leaves the limelight to spend time with his family. They watch Paddington 2. Uh, they talk, and it's just, it's really sweet. And now they have a better relationship, and that's where the movie ends. The end. A few interesting tidbits. Cage plays a fictionalized version of himself, who he said bore little resemblance to his real off-screen personality. He originally turned down the role three or four times, but changed his mind after writer-director Tom Gormick and wrote him a personal letter. Nicholas Cage thought Javi was the best written character in the movie, so much so he even asked to trade parts as he thought playing his own biggest fan was more meta than, <laughs> than playing himself. It wasn't until Pedro Pascal was cast that Cage eventually relented. I just try to imagine how that would have gone. Uh, so would he have played all three characters? His past self, his younger self, his present self, and his biggest fan? I don't, I don't know. Only, only Nick Cage could pull that off. Principal photography began on October 5th, 2020. Most of the movie was not shot in Spain. It was actually shot in Hungary. In one scene, Cage and Javi run from two men they believe are spying on them, then bump into the two men again later. Again, that was my favorite scene. The first two actors who played those men were unavailable when they filmed the end of the scene, so they were replaced by two other actors who looked similar and wore the same outfits. And finally, Nicolas Cage features billing as Nicholas Kim Coppola in one of the dual roles for his film. This is the first time Cage has been billed as a Coppola since the early 1980s. So the big questions of the podcast, would I survive in this movie? I can't lie. I couldn't help the CIA. I couldn't pretend to be Javi's friend if I suspected him of being an arms dealer. And when actual guns came into play, I would absolutely crumble into a pile of tears. So I, I don't think I would survive. I just, I can't, I don't lie well. Now, if I was just living off the Spanish coast with Pedro Pascal in his giant mansion, yeah, yeah, I think I could handle that. That would be heaven. Is this movie believable? I don't know. Anything seems possible with Nick Cage. The movie is is just fun. I found myself smiling a lot, always at Pedro Pascal, but a lot at Nick Cage too. There's enough action to keep you interested, enough laughs to endear you to the characters. I guess it's sort of believable that the CIA might want to pull in an actor to try to find a hostage. <laughs> Why not? The movies make it feel like it's real. And there's enough cheese in the movie to really revel in the campiness. It's also just, it's really sweet. The ending is genuinely sweet and I really liked it. So I, I think it's worth your time to watch. Last question, does this movie hold up? I think time will tell. It's a little too early. It's, it's held up very well for a year, but I suspect it will, or at least it will as any as well as any of Nick Cage's movies hold up. We went and saw Moonstruck at the Art Craft this past weekend. And at one point, Watson turned to me and she goes, have we been gaslit this whole time? I mean, Nicolas Cage can't really act, can he? And he can't, not really. I mean, there are moments in movies that you're like, oh, there he is, there he's done it. But he is always almost a caricature of himself that it's it's interesting to watch and I think that's what makes this movie so interesting too Ooh, prop can't forget the prop what prop from the movie would I like if I was going to start my own kind of pop culture museum 
I thought a lot about this. I can't just take Pedro Pascal or I would do that. But I think it's probably Javi's car, the one that they're driving precariously along the side of a cliff while they are high on LSD. I don't know what kind of car it is because I know nothing about cars, but it's a very, very pretty car. And I would love to be on a European coast driving in that car. It was lovely. Which leads us to our book recommendations. I know I like to try to come up with a theme. There's no real theme I could come up with for this. I thought about unreliable narrators because of the nature of Nick's younger self talking to him. But I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to share a couple of titles that I really enjoy. And that's just going to be good enough. Um, One that I read this year, it's a sci-fi title. It's called Dead Silence by S.A. Barnes. It had me at Titanic meets The Shining. (laughs) It's kind of a sci-fi horror novel about a woman and she's a captain in space and her crew, they discover a, a um, beacon <laughs> that's beeping. What is it like a SOS in space? Um, and they discover this decades lost luxury cruiser and they decide that they're going to board this cruiser and try to bring it back to, to civilization, wherever that's at. Um, so that because Hey, it's like finding a ship in the sea. You you know, if you found it, it's yours. You get whatever's on that ship. And so they're like, hey, there. this was built as a luxury thing. We can make a lot of money. But they realize that the wreckage of Nightmare hasn't yet ended. So when they get on there, they discover a Nightmare still in progress. It's a little creepy. It's actually very creepy. I really enjoyed it, though. So there's almost two kind of timelines, one where they're on the ship and then she has the woman, the captain has, um, managed to get off and get to help. So you're also hearing the story through her memory, her faulty memory. Oh, it was really good. I enjoyed it. It's not a a bad read at all. I read part of it and I listened to a part of it and I liked both ways. So you can do either. And the other one is Under the Whispering Door by TJ Klune. He is quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. Uh, This one is about a reaper who comes to collect this guy named Wallace from his own funeral. And Wallace begins to suspect he might be dead. And then Hugo, the owner of a really peculiar tea shop, promises to help Wallace cross over. So then Wallace decides he's definitely dead. But even in death, he's not ready to kind of abandon his life because he realized he's barely lived his life. So when Wallace is given one week to cross over, he sets about having a lifetime, living a lifetime in just seven days. It is so cute. It's hilarious. It's haunting. It's kind. It's this really uplifting story about a life spent at the office and death spent building a home, it says. And I just really liked the way that that sounds. I loved it. It's really good. And with that, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. You can follow me on Instagram at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today.